Hey friends, I'm Stacy and I'm Melissa and we are teaming up each month to chat about books. What makes our podcast a little different is that we want to encourage your curiosity beyond the book. So how will we do that? In addition to discussing the themes, characters, and a review of the book, we will also discuss what the book taught us and how it inspired our curiosity well after the story finished. Now, let's get on with our episode. Welcome, listeners. This is the Curious Reader Podcast, and we are so happy you joined us today. Before we get started on all things books and beyond, I think we have some exciting news. In our last episode, we spitballed the idea of possibly launching the Curious Reader YouTube channel. Where are we with that, Melissa? And what can our listeners and now viewers tune in to see? Hi, Stacey. Well, I've posted a few videos already. We'll put the URL in the episode notes. And by YouTube rules, we need 100 subscribers to make our own easy-to-remember custom URL. So listeners, please browse over and subscribe. We have some promo videos up right now and the full interview we recorded with our guest for today's podcast, as well as our full interview from A Song of Wraiths and Ruin with musician Josh DeRocher. And talking about our episode notes, I want to mention that the recommended websites to which we link for each episode are on Pinterest for today's. So the recommended resources for all of our podcast episodes can now be found there, too. I transferred everything over. Wonderful. One easy location. Well, all of that sounds great. And I think we're going to add maybe some candid things, too. For example, like our reading spaces, maybe how we prepare for the podcast, um, almost a behind-the-scenes view every now and then. So let's move on to our episode. Today, we are discussing The Inheritance Games by Jennifer Lynn Barnes. Okay, so I am sure you will hear, all, all you're going to hear from me is giddiness. It, it's going to be in my voice as I give my review. I'll probably babble um, and I'll squeal with delight because I am smitten. You heard that right, smitten. A deep attraction <laughs> and infatuation. See, it's that feeling when someone asks you about a book and your eyes get wide and a huge smile gets on your face. You tell them to pull up a chair because it's going to be a while. But quite honestly, you might not make any sense because it's just like, I loved and oh, and then when they did this and I was trying to think of this and that's how it's going to be. Yeah, this is my genre, people. I will say, Melissa, I kept mulling over if you would find three themes to discuss, because this purely was, I think, an entertainment read. Um, and I say this not because the book uh, lacked exploration beyond the uh, luxurious mystery, but because there was such an entertainment factor um, for me in this book, and I was wrapped up in devouring the joy of reading it. Uh, it just seemed different to me. Uh, so before you share your three themes, and yes, listeners, Melissa does have a stellar three. Was this book harder for you to pinpoint what to expand on and talk about? Yeah, and we were talking a little bit about this before we got on. It, it was harder. Um, I think that's because author Jennifer Lynn Barnes did not ground her mystery and culture quite the same way past mm. authors did. Um, they did different kinds of research for their books than, than she would have 
had to do. Um, if you recall from past podcasts, The Silence Between Us was grounded in deaf culture. Charming as a Verb was based on Haitian and New York culture. Song of Wraiths and Ruin was West African. And Cemetery Boys was Latinx. This book was not as obvious about culture per se. And as I started to get into it, I, I didn't quite panic, but <laughs> I said, all right, we're putting my information skills to the test. So as I thought about the people in the book, I realized that having wealth is sort of a culture in itself. It influences how people live and act and who they are. So our three themes for today are how the wealthy live, foundations, and treasure hunts. Foundations and wealth are obviously closely related themes, but treasure hunts is a little fun that I threw in because I read a book as a kid that came to mind as I was reading The Inheritance Games mm -hmm. when I when we were running around looking for clues to the mysteries, and I'll, I'll talk about more that later, more about that later in the episode. Great, great. So. For those of you who have not had the pleasure of reading this book yet, um, you're probably wondering why I'm gushing about it so, and how those three themes fit in. So let's give a quick introduction here. So Avery uh, Kylie Grams is a high school junior. Her grades are quite good, uh, which should put her in contention for a scholarship at UConn. She's fairly invisible, though, with her only friends being Harry, the homeless man uh, from the park that she does like to play chess with and, and um, other activities. Uh, that do with puzzling and, you know, maybe some poker or, you know, some gambling. Um, and then her BFF, Max, and that's short for uh, Maxine. And she lives in another state, and so they mainly uh, converse uh, through text to each other. Avery's mother uh, passed two years ago, and she lives with her guardian and half-sister, Libby. Uh, resources are tight. After Libby's on-again, off-again abusive boyfriend has moved back in, Avery resorts to sleeping in her car. And the next day, Avery's life is never going to be the same again. Texas billionaire and philanthropist Tobias Hawthorne has died, and he's named Avery the beneficiary of his fortune. She and her sister are whisked off to Texas for the reading of the will at the Hawthorne House which is now hers, but its occupants, and remember that would be now the family that has just learned that they were disinherited, um, they've been granted tenancy. There is a big string attached to Avery receiving the fortune, and I'm going to quote this from the book, the only string attached to my inheriting billions of dollars is that I must move into a mansion, a mansion where a large number of the people who are expecting to inherit this money still live, and I can't kick them out. And uh, let me back up a minute. I forgot to mention that Avery has never met Tobias Hawthorne. She doesn't think she has. She has no recollection of it. She has no idea why he's left her everything. And quite frankly, neither can the family. The plot twists and turns and twists again as Avery and the late billionaire's grandsons start to investigate and uncover a series of riddles that were left by their grandfather. He actually really liked uh, puzzles, and um, I'll say a little bit more about the boy's upbringing um, in just a bit. Uh, let's see, where am I? And um, the story unfolds. We find that there are two more mysteries. So there's three mysteries in this one book. Where to start? Oh, maybe let's talk characters. <laughs> now, for me, um, and we talked a little bit about this too, that, that I thought there was some good character development. You felt a little bit different, um, Melissa. And, and I do think that some of it, and you're going to get to a book later on, has to do with this is a young adult book. And, and I do think it is a little bit more on capturing the, the 
young part of a young adult book, I think. More right, like so maybe 14, 15. It's more about the adventure and the character development. It may not be as detailed as someone who likes to read adult books or a bu- books for older young adults. Yeah, and I and I agree with that. Um, and and for me, this was one of those books that I felt like I could just sit down, and the chapters were short, and there had momentum going. But it wasn't one of those books where I sometimes look at the chapter and I go, okay, there's 15 pages to this one. Can I? Uh, do I want to continue it? Do I want to go to bed tonight? Um, this was just like, okay, only two more pages. Oh, I'll read that. Oh, well, that's interesting. Three more pages. You know, it was it was. St- Strongly in entertainment, move forward, get on with the game kind of thing. So, but here's my thoughts about Avery. She is smart, good with numbers, wise beyond her years, and good-hearted, full of compassion and determination. I loved her tenacity in encouraging um, and encountering the traps upon traps and riddles upon riddles. That's uh, said over and over within the book. She likes to blend in, though, and I think that she feels that is her place, blending in. At one point, she says, be wallpaper, right? Just blend in. And um, she also feels, I think, that there's nothing special about her. Uh, then she's plopped into this whirlwind event, and she's in the limelight. The paparazzi are swimming around. In that part, she doesn't like. But why did this billionaire leave her the money? I think Avery enjoys the puzzles. And the bigger draw to the game for her is that she believes that she is special. So I think it's an internal endeavor for her. She wants to know, why me? I'm special, aren't I? There's something about me. So the Hawthorne Grandsons. And this is a hard book for me to talk about a little bit because I don't want to tell you too much about the book because of the puzzles and the mystery and um, it's kind of all wrapped up in there. But each of the grandsons had their own uniqueness. And and I thought they were fleshed out pretty well. You could They were distinct. You could tell the differences yeah, between the four of definitely them. Definitely different yeah. personalities. Um, and I'm not going to go into all that I think was fabulous about them, but I really, because I really want the reader to discover their distinct personalities and their lovability all on their own. Um, what I will say is that they live extraordinary lives and they've accomplished extraordinary things in their short lives. So I think their ages range from the oldest, Nash, being 20 down to, I think, um, Xander, or short for Alexander, is 17. So I think they're, they range in there and there's four of them. They have written books. They have won national awards and trophies. They've held dozen of patents. Every a year on their birthday, they were told to invest, to create, and cultivate. Uh, and that, and and they were given puzzles by their grandfather. That was, you know, part of uh, their growing up. Their childhood was to compete with each other and solve the puzzle, and who could figure it out. And and yet they were broken. There is a part in the book where Nash, the oldest brother, says something to Avery along the lines of, they were broken before you came, and they'll be broken long after you've gone. There's something like that. This brokenness, to me, is an integral part of the storyline, particularly with the boys and their grandfather. So not everything is is perfect. You think they have these perfect lives, and yeah, we learn more about them. Yeah, yeah. Um, and there's a lot of characters in this book, and they all hold very important and unique places. Some of them are uh, obviously red herrings. Some are pivotal to the plot twists. And there's these two characters, Emily, who is um, who pulls at the heartstrings of two of the brothers, and, and she is no longer living. So uh, she also uh, had passed away about two years ago, but she has a, she has a huge part in this book. And then there's Uncle Toby, or Tobias Hawthorne II, and um, he is also deceased or missing. 
Um, and so remember I told you there's three mysteries in this book. And so those two characters are also integral to that part of the other mysteries. And to find out how Emily and Tobias Hawthorne the second fit in, you'll have to read the book. And it's hard to talk about because I don't want to give it away. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> but by page 334, I was liter- literally having um, heart palpitations. If you were next to me reading and you would also notice that I was actually writing down riddles, I was trying to <laughs> figure out some of the things. And, and the thing is, you know, and I don't want to ruin this for anybody, but it was not that kind of book where I don't think anything was plainly out there for you. Like, you could write down all those clues, but it, I don't think I was going to solve the riddle. No. But I was engrossed by the game and I loved it. <laughs> so the final character I want to talk about, and I and I don't want to leave this out because this character is actually Hawthorne House itself. Yeah, I love when they include a place as a character. Exactly. So this is a palatial mansion, um, and it, like I said, it's its own character. There were new wings that were added each year. It holds a bowling alley, racetrack, five libraries, two theaters, suites, offices, and secret passageways hidden chambers, blocked-off wings, and all of this added to the mystery and the riddles and the puzzles. And um, at each candelabra that was tilted or a fireplace that gave way to a secret tunnel or a floor that dropped onto another level, the house was revealing a bit more about itself and its chief architect. I just love old houses. And when an author can make that come alive, it's it's really special, I think. That so, is great but, to see. Before I move on to my three themes, I want to mention throughout the book, I kept thinking of what they call the gothic novel, mm-hmm. Rebecca. It's precisely because of that palatial mansion as its own character that made me start thinking about that. Have you read that? Okay, so I have a very, very tall to be red pile, <laughs> and the novel Rebecca has been on it for a long time. I actually was just talking to a colleague of mine, Elizabeth, um, from the third floor. We were talking about Rebecca, and she says it, it's near and dear to her heart as well, and she told me I would love it. Um, but, the, it, oh, so this is the second time this month someone has mentioned this book to me, and, and I, given that I love the Inheritance game so much, I think I might move it up a little bit. I think talking about old buildings, we happen to be in an old building. And when you talk about Elizabeth up on the third floor, there's lots of nooks and crannies and floors here, too. Yeah, we have these closets. We call them the gnome closet because literally you have to be like a gnome to fit through the doors. What was the point of them way back when? Do you I, know? you know, I don't know if they were put in because they're on the third floor. And so I don't know if that was space that wasn't originally supposed to be used. So when they um, maybe came through to make the third floor usable, they made these little closets there and just said, this is how it's going to work because it's a slanted wall. You're going to have this small little door that you're going to hunch over in to go through. <laughs> That's so cool. We might have to record something about this building perhaps <laughs> for our new YouTube channel. <laughs> So I usually read or reread a couple of classics a year. And in 2020, that happened to be Rebecca, which I had never read before. I loved it. And I'm really glad that I read it because Jennifer Lynn Barnes definitely drew much of her inspiration from that book, from the way she tried to set up the mansion as a character by giving it those mysterious rooms that served as a setting for intrigue. We're always talking about intrigue. Um, To the poor character who was dropped into wealth to the plot with a dead woman uh, who, was, who had been clever and toyed with other emotions. That was, that was mm-hmm. Emily. If you liked Jennifer Lynn Barnes' book, you should definitely read the 1940s classic, Rebecca. 
It was when Avery arrived at her first socialite event that I was sure of the Rebecca connection. It was Mm -hmm. obvious. Avery is tricked into dressing up as Emily. And in the classic novel, Maxim de Winter's second wife, who is known only as Mrs. de Winter, they didn't bother to give her a first name. She is tricked into dressing up like a portrait in the mansion. She thinks the portrait is of an ancestor, and it turns out that it is an image of Mr. de Winter's first wife, who mysteriously disappeared. The other connections then rapidly unfold, and I don't want to give spoilers, but they relate <laughs> to romantic entanglements and affairs. So I would say that this book, this book, Inheritance Games, has that gothic feel for which Rebecca is known, and that was my favorite part of the Inheritance Games. Well, you've sold me, and so now I think I'm moving that book like right up on top. Uh, well, it's going to actually be second, because right <laughs> on top is probably going to be the next one for our podcast, so it, or maybe I'll have to do them together. I don't know, but, <laughs> but it's sold, and I'm going to go onto the online library catalog today and put that book on hold. <laughs> there you go. So let's get to the themes. The first theme is how the wealthy live. So this theme was interesting to me. I try to pick themes that are interesting to me. That's the great part about research. You should make things interesting to you. And as you're reading, you should try to make those connections to things that you already have in your own brain. So for me, I volunteered at one of the Vanderbilt mansions when I was a kid. You never cease to amaze me. (laughs) So much, Melissa. I I told somebody that I sold (laughs) vacuums door to door in college and perfume from boxes. And they just looked at me like... Wow. Yeah, exactly. Who are you? She is a mystery all on her own, people. (laughs) Anyway, so the place I volunteered was one of this super wealthy family's smaller mansions, but it's still bigger than any real house that I've ever been to. And I'm using air quotes for those who are listening because, yeah, this is a real house. I don't know if you could call it a house, but um, I had a really cool job indexing the Vanderbilt scrapbooks. I don't know if the scrapbooks had been kept by a family member or by a servant, but they included news clippings of the happenings of all the family members. And it was interesting to see how the, and I'm going to quote again, paparazzi, because I don't know if they were called that back then, but they wrote about everyone in the family. I, I'm wondering where the word paparazzi came from. That's another research project. Yeah. For me. <laughs> so anyway, at the Vanderbilt, I often wondered if the scrapbooks were kept by a family member. How did that person think or feel about how they were being portrayed? How much of what appeared in the news was because a family member wanted that particular publicity? Mm. What did they want outsiders to see versus how much was information that the press had to dig up on them. And that was actually a part of this inheritance. Yeah, I was just going to say that. Well, that played a part. I, you know, I was thinking that in my mind as you were talking about that, Melissa, that played a part in this. And there, there's a part where Avery actually um, has to go through like this media training, right? Like how she can answer and, and especially when tough questions are thrown at you to just, you know, ignore them and not let your emotions and how you feel play on your face, which I have a hard time with that. You know, I think my face reveals everything all the time. So that that was definitely a part of of the story. Yeah. And it was something I had never thought about before. Mm. So that was that was pretty fascinating. I kept thinking. um, Well, let me back up a minute. So um, when I was in grad school, I had a similar job at the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston, where I indexed Mrs. Gardner's scrapbooks. 
So she was known for working hard to cultivate an image. And there's a famous portrait created by the artist John Singer Sargent within the museum, which shows Gardner in a low-cut dress. She's looking straight at the viewer and is very self-aware and in <laughs> charge. She liked to be in charge. Um, and we'll talk about her will in a minute. Some say she asked Sargent to paint this image to mimic, mimic his famous Madame X portrait. And okay. I was an art history major, so my mind definitely went right there as okay. I was thinking about this. Um, the Madame X portrait had caused a big stir in upper crust society and in the art world because of the low cut dress. And, mm. and the, it was very risque, considered risque. But with her not quite as risque portrait, Mrs. Gardner might have been trying to shake up Boston society as well, which was a little more uptight back then than New York society. <laughs> <laughs> well, a, a shameless plug here, but the um, Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum is one of a number of museums that the Gostown Public Library offers as museum passes. So listeners, if you're a patron of the library, you may want to check that out. And also, that museum is not without a mystery of its own. Isn't that correct, Melissa? Right? Okay, so sometime in 1990, in the wee hours of the morning, I believe two men dressed up as police, and they were given access to the museum. They stole 13 paintings, and I think the paintings are still not recovered, and there's like a $10 million reward for information and recovery of the paintings in good condition, not just information. Um, that's a small tangent, and, and you know, we're going to backtrack to Melissa, but hey, mysteries, mysteries, you know? Yeah, that mystery was really cool because I was studying art history when that, wow. when that happened. And um, if you want to go see a cool bi- old building, that is definitely one to see. And I had the, um, the advantage of being able to work on the top floor where people aren't allowed to go because mm. I was an intern there. So that was that was pretty cool. But the mystery surrounding Gardner kind of culminated in what they needed to do with the museum, because in Miss Gardner's will, she said if she left her house to the people, okay. she used to have people come into the bottom floors once a week. She actually lived there, but ah. they could come in and look at her paintings once a hmm. week. So then in her will, she left it as a museum. And she said if anybody ever changed anything, they would have to get rid of it. So there was this big controversy when things were stolen and therefore something had changed. Did they have to get rid of the museum? And they decided instead that they would just leave the walls blank where those paintings had been. That's so cool. So if you go and visit and you see those blank painting areas... You now have some inside information. I'm sure they tell you about it at the museum, but you'll already know. Right. Go look for them. <laughs> <laughs> so thinking about Miss Gardner and thinking about the Vanderbilts and thinking about the Hawthorns, I kept thinking about the portrayals of the rich and famous that we see in the media versus what they're really like, as we talked about before. So I went online and I looked for some stuff for us. <laughs> there was a show on a long time ago called The Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. Yes, remember I remember that. that. <laughs> With um, Who was that guy? Keech, he was from, right? Like something Keech, wasn't it? He had uh, a beautiful voice. Yeah. It was just, yeah. And he introduced the, he was perfect for introducing them. So I found a more current but similar show on YouTube, which I've shared with you in our Pinterest called Secret Lives of the Super Rich. I haven't watched it yet. I haven't (laughs) pulled up waiting to watch it. Um, But it should give viewers hours of entertainment if they're interested in such things. (laughs) So I had fun exploring this subject and just browsing the web when doing research. Um, Air quotes again, because this isn't really academic research when we're looking into the paparazzi and and 
popular things about the rich. Um, but sometimes it's just fun to explore. Um, I entered the keywords billionaire lives and started learning about how various billionaires live. But I had lots of questions as I went because I'm always asking questions. Yep. Um, is this web page I found reputable or is there an agenda? Are they mm -hmm. trying to present somebody a certain way? And I think the Kardashians kept coming to mind. They definitely want a certain image and some people yes. might want to portray them differently. Yep. Um, is this information portraying the famous person as he wants to be seen and or is it an accurate portrayal of the person? What information in this article might lead me to more information that will interest me? What other keywords should I search to find more information? What new questions do I have related to this particular article? So I'm always encouraging, again, I mention my students every episode, um, I'm always encouraging them to ask questions, and there are always more questions to be asked. And so remember, this podcast is for students, too. It is for teens. So hopefully you're listening to these things and enjoying the books we talk about, but also doing some research on your own. And YA books are wonderful because they're not just for teens. Adults can enjoy they them can. just as much. As you can see, because we're enjoying these books. We are. <laughs> so my second theme is philanthropy and giving. As I was researching billionaires, I stumbled onto philanthropy and started thinking about the Hawthorne's Foundation, which yes. was a big part of this book. A foundation allows wealthy individuals to provide money to those in need. We may think of an organization in real life such as the Gates Foundation, which provides money for global health and other areas. Uh, sorry, I lost my place. Okay. <laughs> or if you listen to NPR or watch PBS, they often provide a long list of foundations. Yep, that support their work. Mm -hmm. So, and as I was listening to NPR, Bill Gates has a new book out called huh. How to Avoid a Climate Disaster that I'm going to add to my big pile. Um, so listeners looking for a good nonfiction read may want to check that yeah. out. So you'll see on YouTube that we have a lot of notes on what we're going to yes. talk about. So we do off the cuff, but we also have notes. And sometimes we do lose our place. So <laughs> we do. <laughs> it happens. Because <laughs> there's a lot of notes. And then you look down and all the words look the same. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so um, as I was researching, I got sidetracked. And that's the fun part about doing research um, and looking for information. I came across a philanthropist who I did not know. And I was fascinated by Chuck Feeney and watched several short documentaries about him. We all know about Warren Buffett yeah. and, and people like that. But um, Charles Feeney decided that he was going to be more low-key. At a young age, he started selling sandwiches to make his way through college. He eventually rolled that into a duty-free business. Hmm. You know, all those shops all yeah. around the world. That was, that was him. And he started in Hawaii. Um, and then started up these businesses in key spots around the world. And he made billions from wow. this. But Feeney eventually grew dissatisfied with living a life of wealth. Here's a billionaire whose goal in life became giving all his money away before he died. Wow. So um, in, in an episode I share on Pinterest uh, about him, his daughter talks about what a kind man he was and, and what their life was like. And they have some... Um, films from when she was young with them in the pool and wow. having parties, but he, that was not 
for him. So and it's that, interesting that you said that because immediately in the back of my mind, because you know, part of this story was the fact that the these grandsons and and you know um, other family members realized that they were disinherited. So it, it's in the back of my mind when you were talking about his goal being to give away all of his money. I was like, I wonder how his family felt about that. So yeah, they seem perfectly fine. Yeah. And actually, Warren Buffett's children know they're not getting any money either. I think this is a common yeah. thing with some billionaires. And I guess for these billionaires. These their family probably already knew because maybe that's that's the way that they were raised and already told about how they feel about money as opposed to you know in this book yeah, yeah. well in the inheritance games the foundation was so important yeah. to them and they were raised with this sense of um, sense of the importance in yeah. their place in the world to, to good and and I do think that the um, the the grandsons being upset about not get it really doesn't have to do I think with money to go and spend on you know whatever another car or whatever um, I think the foundation did play a big part and for one of the sons Grayson especially because um, part of his work was was in that foundation and, and helping to run that foundation was what was going to happen to it right and that exactly. its legacy would continue on. So just to finish up with Charles Feeney, because this is, is timely, in the fall of last year, at the age of 89, he did give away the rest of his money. And he, uh, it actually says he doesn't have his own house. He doesn't have his own car. I don't know if he rents an apartment. Yeah. I don't know. Um, That's but amazing. when he goes to visit his daughter, he stays in her house. He won't go to a fancy hotel. He just he just lives a regular, a regular life. Regular life. Wow. So. That is really interesting. <laughs> So continuing on just a little bit about the Hawthorne Foundation and philanthropy in this book, um, I had post-it note marked a part in the book where Avery learns about the Hawthorne Foundation, particularly about how much money per year the foundation gives to charitable organizations. Um, She then questions Zara, who's um, Tobias's daughter, one of the daughters, and and she's an aunt um, of the grandsons. And she has spent her entire adult life running the foundation, and so Avery asks Zara about the areas the foundation gives money to, and Avery continues to think about what areas she would want the foundation to give to. She comes up with homelessness, poverty, domestic violence, access to preventative care. Um, everything that she has mentioned has been something that has ex- she has experience with in her life, and she wants to give back to make a difference in those areas. Specifically, what could I do with $100 million a year, she says. So I paused for a minute when reading that and thought to myself, well, what organizations would I support? What need would I want my money to benefit if I was bestowed an inheritance of $46.2 billion? But the reality is I probably will not be an heiress one day, uh, but I can still help my community and the world. So the last lottery was giving away billions of dollars. Remember this? We were buying tickets. We were hoping and and thinking what we would do with all that. So, but exactly, the idea of giving does not necessarily need to involve money. Most of us won't win the lottery or be bestowed all this money. You can give back to your community to make the world a better place, which often has an even greater impact on people than a larger foundation Mm. might. And I have linked to several organizations that uh, promote this for young people on our podcast, Pinterest Board. So take a look there. If you're a teen, Design for Change and Learning to Give are two places you can go to learn more about giving back to your community. Uh, So to enhance this theme of giving back, I decided to speak with an expert on this topic, 
John Webb is one of Goffstown High School's guidance counselors, and he runs several several groups, five to be exact, that are focused on giving. And he talked to me a bit about these groups and their role in helping the community. So take a little listen to that right now. And the importance of volunteering and giving and um, serving others in need is especially in the last uh, 11 months has been um, huge and incredible. And the outpouring of uh, support from students and student groups that I work with has been incredible. Um, Whether it's um, student ambassadors um, donating over $1,000 to our local food network um, or peer outreach, um, also making a similar donation um, or um, kids doing um, Thanksgiving baskets um, during the the, uh, holidays um, where they uh, donated over $100 per basket uh, and uh, Hannaford's just to give them a shout out uh, matched uh, each basket with a turkey. Um, So families in need got a chance to to pick them up safely um, during during Thanksgiving. So so service is certainly a huge component of of my work with kids in, in these service oriented groups. John also talked about the role that giving plays in a student's life. We talked about how giving not only helps those receiving, but how it also impacts, uh, I think I said the same word again. So it helps those who are giving and receiving. (laughs) So take a listen. But that's not necessarily, I mean, it's important, but that's not why you give. Right, right. Uh, And what, what, is wonderful about it is that it allows the 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 givers to um feel that gratitude and and to know that it's that it's really worth it and that it's not just um you know stranger joe and and random family smith you know it's there while i do keep the the names confidential um um I, i i do share the 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 genuine words and and let kids know that that what they're doing is is impactful. So that lo- there's a local component there too to, to know that you're actually reaching people in your own community. Yeah, for sure. Finally, John talked about how he gives back as a professional and how he sees that as central to his work. I love his answer about supporting others. I think that we can all think about ways that we can help others using our knowledge or turning what we are passionate about to influence others. For example, there's a teen who is particularly close to me, my daughter, who loves (laughs) fashion design. Her goal is to design fashions that help others express themselves, to use dress as a way to feel Mm. confident. And she actually wrote this into her college applications. It's that important to her. That's what she wants to do with her life. So John threw me a curveball and asked how I would Ah. give back. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I guess it's what you were thinking about as you were reading the book, Stacey, as you mentioned. When John asked me the question, I was thinking about Alan Alda's Center for Communication when I answered. Do you listen to that podcast, Clear and Vivid? So I have not listened to that podcast, and I'm going to now. And I'll tell you, listeners, I leave almost every (laughs) Curious Reader podcast with notes on books to read, podcasts to listen to, other ideas, events, places to research. There's a wealth of interesting stuff that comes from reading beyond the book each and every time. Absolutely. Um, Clear and Vivid is one of my favorites. 
Um, I love Alan Alda as an actor. Mm -hmm. And if you're not familiar with his work on Scientific American Frontiers from decades ago, um, it was a great show for fellow science geeks out there. It's available through Amazon Prime. I looked Ah. it up. So if you have that, you can still see it there. Um, Alda, with his money and with support from other people, set up at Hofstra University a... uh, center that addresses communication needs to how to help doctors better communicate with patients okay and he uses his acting background to make that connection Hmm. so he sees acting as a way of communicating obviously so i envision something like that with my answer here that Mm -hmm. when i responded to john so let me play that for you and as you listen think about how you can help give back to your community and dream about how you might do it if you had all the money in the world at your disposal (laughs) About ten years ago, I I kind of figured out uh, I I I live on the seacoast, so my commute's about forty forty five minutes, and I I use that time to really reflect. And and I the, the thought occurred to me like as I, I was driving in one day that I I just go well, I wonder who I can empower and encourage today, and that's just been my mantra ever since. It's just like like everyone that I meet, I I, I don't want to do something for you. I want to I want to be with you and teach you how to do it yourself mostly around coping with anxiety, sadness, um, and, and, and then, of course, you know, future planning, life planning. Um, so, so dealing with your current life now and then planning for a healthy, vibrant uh, uh, life uh, in your future. So if I could, if, if I could uh, ask, can I ask you a question? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, great. So uh, I, I'm, I'm curious, if, you know, if, if you had a billion dollars, what what yeah. might you first thing that you might do to make an impact around around uh, your work with teams? Yeah, I, I've given this a lot of thought actually, and and what you had said about what am I going to do for somebody today? That's kind of how I think, but in terms of information, so how can I help people make sense of all this crazy information around them, especially especially now? Um, so I would love to set up. There, there are various colleges around that have professors who study information, um, but I would love to set up something even bigger that brings all of these people together to talk about how we can help people make sense of the information around them to become information literate um, and to avoid some of these problems we have where people don't talk to each other because they're grounded in misinformation um, and anger and hatred. And um, I would love to set up something to break that down. Yeah. Finally, I want to give a little description that I found about philanthropy on the Fidelity charitable website. Um, When you search for foundations, Fidelity comes right up. And it says a philanthropist is a person who donates time, money, experience, skills, or talent to help create a better world. Anyone can be a philanthropist regardless of status or net worth. Just something to think about. Yes. So finally, we're on theme three. And this is the fun one. Are you rubbing your hands together? I am. I was was like, yeah. (laughs) The final one is treasure hunts. Central to inheritance games are the clues given to Avery and the Hawthorne family to solve the mystery behind the elder Mr. Hawthorne's will. The most common comparison people seem to make with the book is the movie Knives Out. Um, Do you remember 
that movie, Stacey? I love that movie. <laughs> I've seen it twice. Actually, I think I've seen it three times. Two times in the movies and one time at home. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so I think the disinherited family, unbeknownst to them, plays a role in that connection. I also think the quirky, um, eclectic, and flawed character traits of the Juicy Family Secrets draw a comparison. So um, I've read other reviews that have also described this book as a blend of Knives Out, Clue, and We Were Liars kind of rolled into one. And I think that's a pretty good mashup. Um, But the treasure hunt aspect brings a different book to your mind. Right, Melissa? Yes. I immediately thought about Masquerade with the treasure angle. So do you remember that? I don't. So I had to. I was like, Masquerade? I don't remember that book. So I had to look it up. And it did not ring any bell. Like, there was no recollection there. But... This book reminded me of one of my favorite middle school, um, favorite, favorite reads, and I've read it many, many times, and I did it as a read aloud, aloud with my boys, too, was The Westing Game by um, Ellen Raskin. Uh, see, these tenants live in this newly developed Sunset Towers. It's owned by the Westing Estates. Uh, the tenants, they are also an eclectic mix of people, all with their their secrets and flaws, and some even have illegal behaviors. Um, a dead body is found at the Westing Mansion, and then Sam Westing, who you know owns all this estate, has passed away. and And the tenants are all called with some other people to the will reading and told that Sam Westing was murdered. And someone at the reading, some someone who's an heir, is the culprit. They're told to break into teams and try to solve the murder. They're given clues along with $10,000. And the one that solves the mystery inherits the whole estate. There's lots of clues and puzzles, nutso characters, <laughs> red herring, crazy twists, um, and an unexpected conclusion. And I think that really reminded me of Inheritance It games. sounds really familiar. And yeah. I, I picked up that book years ago, and yeah. then I put it down. And I don't know if it was too slow, but I'm going to have to add it back to my yeah, pile. Yeah, you do. Okay. It's, good. it's oh. one of my favorite. Favorite, favorite. All right. I'll take a look again. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to talk a little bit about Masquerade. Okay. Since, since I'm connecting it to things that, that relate to me. Um, Masquerade came out when I was in elementary school in the 70s. Um. And I want to talk about it because of what I found out when I went digging. No pun Mm. intended. Digging for treasure. (laughs) Treasure. Ah, Anyway, when I looked for information about Masquerade to remind myself what it was all about, I found some more intrigue. Firstly, I remember being enraptured with the beautiful colors in the images that were drawn for the book. Mm. And I hadn't seen the book in years, but I still remembered the cover. What is it? 30, 40 years later. Wow. because it's that beautiful. Um, we talked about how beautiful a song for Wreaths and Ruins mm-hmm. cover is. This this one is like over the top. Wow. Maybe the best I've ever seen. The book served to provide clues to a treasure that was buried somewhere in the world by the author. That much I remembered. And I remember working with classmates at the prompting of our teacher to figure out the mystery between the pages. So I found a BBC article to remind myself what this was all about Mm -hmm. and actually to see it through adult eyes because, you know, how we remember things as a child is definitely different. Um, And this article is now on our Pinterest board. The article is called Masquerade, How a Real-Life Treasure Hunt Obsessed a Nation, and it was actually an international sensation. In the 70s, author Kit Williams in the UK published a storybook whose clues would lead readers to an 18-karat gold bunny, which was buried in England. And I would say (laughs) that this is definitely a great way to sell your book, because he did sell millions. Wow. (laughs) 
There is a lot of intrigue when money is involved, just like with the inheritance games. Yes. Yep. Um, I'm going to read excerpts directly from the article because I can't tell this story any better than uh, author Mark Shields from the BBC did. Okay. So setting off one night in August 1979, Williams was accompanied by a single witness chosen by his publisher, Tom Mashler, the television host Bamber Gascoigne. At a precise spot on the common, Williams and his famous witness buried the hair, which was sealed in wax and placed in a ceramic case to evade metal detectors. Upon it was the engraving, I am the keeper of the jewel of the masquerade, which lies waiting safe inside me for you or eternity. Having witnessed the burial, Gascoigne was to provide the final flourish, emptying over the hair a fresh cow pat (laughs) from a Tupperware box. The perceptive reader would be led to this location selected by Williams years before while on a picnic with his then-girlfriend by unearthing the complex clues in the paintings. But the paintings' detail allowed for almost as many interpretations and theories as there were fans. The book was an instant success as readers from across the world raced to solve the mystery. An airline even sold transatlantic masquerade tickets, (laughs) which came with a free spade on arrival. Wow! The first edition sold out within two days or something like that, Williams recalled in a BBC4 documentary, The Man Behind the Masquerade. They were reprinting so fast it became a sensation in a way that it moved so fast. Williams, until then a little-known artist, was thrust into the spotlight. And the article goes on to talk about the author's success and the puzzle itself. And then it says, The burial spot was where Williams knew the shadow of Catherine of Aragon's cross fell on the spring and autumn equinox, meaning it would point to the right place on the right day. It took nearly three years for the code to be cracked by physics teachers Mike Barker and John Russo, but the treasure was ultimately to elude them. They were beaten to the find by a reclusive puzzler called Ken Thomas, who shunned publicity that came with solving a mystery that had captivated the world. He was filmed with Williams as he freed the hair from the wax case, but later insisted on covering his face with a scarf and would only be interviewed from behind a screen. He refused to exhibit his treasure. Hmm. All kinds of weird people, like in our (laughs) book. (laughs) Unable to share in the joy of his discovery, masquerade fans grew suspicious of Thomas and later Williams, with some even suggesting he had conspired to cheat them. After years of searching for hidden clues, they saw another in an anagram of Kit Williams, I Will Mask It. The artist, however, shared their doubts over Thomas, realizing he had not solved the full puzzle, but uncovered the gold's location by other means, so they were right to be suspicious. So lots mm. of twists and turns. It was not until 1988 that a newspaper finally uncovered the link between Thomas, revealed to be a pseudonym, and William's ex-girlfriend, who had remembered their visit to Amtill years before. <laughs> When Thomas's company, and it, there's a sad ending, yeah. when Thomas's company, Hairsoft, collapsed, he was forced to sell the hair at auction to raise money. <laughs> Quite a treasure hunt, huh, Stacey? Wow, <laughs> I'm, I'm a bit speechless about this. And does that cast a dark shadow on, on your fond childhood memories of this book, Melissa? Yeah, it makes it, makes it even better, I think. A mystery, mystery. wrapped in a mystery. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Oh, well, this is another long episode. I think we have, I told you I was going to babble people, that <laughs> that we've found some really great information and some other mysteries to talk about. Um, and I can't end this episode without letting everyone know that The Inheritance Games is the first book in a duology. And book two is slated for September of this year. 
I will be the first in line to read it. And maybe we'll do a follow-up <laughs> podcast for book two. I don't know. We'll see. But um, And finally, I did read that Amazon Studios may be adapting the book for a TV series. And um, talk came um, about this first in March of 2020, and it, that was amid the first round of COVID shutdowns. Um, but I did see more talk uh, about it this past September, so I still think it's in the work. It's probably just going to take a little while, but it's something to be on the lookout for. And speaking of looking out for something, how about next month's podcast? In March, Melissa and I will be reading and discussing an adult book with Tina Peel. And this is an older book. We've been doing newer books, so this is going back a little bit. But a recent miniseries on Netflix has invited new interests. So catch us next month when we bring you The Queen's Gambit by Walter Tevis. And until then, thank you for listening. And remember, the curious reader seeks understanding beyond the book.